This is the second message in our new series through the book of Revelation. I want to say thank you to Abiyad and Feliki, one of our elders who preached two weeks ago, and then Pastor Evan a week ago so ably started us into this series. I'm not going to take the time to do an extensive review of last week, but for you who missed last week, let me just hit some high points. Um, oh, and by the way, let's get clear on something right at the start. There's no S on the end of Revelation. Uh, so I hear some of you saying Revelations. You're driving me crazy. Um, it's not plural, it's singular. And why does it matter? It matters because um, we are to understand what's revealed in this book, not as a series of messages or revelations kind of strung together like a string of pearls, but rather as one continuous, cohesive, coherent message. The Greek word that's translated revelation is apocalypsis. It's the word from which we get our words apocalypse and apocalyptic. We often associate that word apocalypse with some kind of calamity, some kind of disaster. Um, For example, we have a heavy snow. They call it snowpocalypse. Um, If you saw the movie Apocalypse Now, if you're old enough to remember that movie, you know that that was no picnic either. Um, But it actually means something quite different. It's the disclosure the unveiling, the the uncovering, the revealing of something that was previously hidden or previously undisclosed. And what is that? Who or what is being revealed? First and foremost, John wants us to know it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The opening five words tell us exactly that. Revelation 1.1. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's from God. It's through Jesus and the mediation of an angel. And it's about Jesus. It's for the seven churches in Asia, and it is for us today. And John wants us to know that overarching and, and undergir- undergirding this entire book is a revelation of who Jesus Christ really is in all of his fullness. So when all is said and done, what we should hope and expect to come away with from this series of sermons is, is not simply a clearer understanding of things to come at the end of the age, but a fuller and a deeper knowledge of Jesus, the sovereign Lord, the only Savior, uh, the soon coming King that, that will be transformational to our lives now and will prepare us for his coming. In the opening section, specifically verses 5 and 8, John, John identifies Jesus as the faithful witness, first of all, the one who is faithful, who is true, who is trustworthy, He reveals him also as the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he is the preeminent one who defeated death for us so that we no longer have to live in the fear of death. That term firstborn also suggests and implies that others are going to follow in the likeness of his resurrection. In verse 5 also is the title, the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. In verse 8, he is the alpha and omega He is the first and the last. In Hebrew, he would be the Aleph and the Tav. For us, he is the A and the Z. Or for you Canadians, the A and the Z. He is is the eternal one who lives and reigns outside of time, who knows the end from the beginning. Second, the latter part of verse 1 tells us that it is the revelation of things that must soon Take place. We need to understand that word soon there in verse one, because it doesn't necessarily indicate that the events that are prophesied will occur at a time in close proximity to when the revelation itself is given. But rather, it means that when they, 
when these things begin to happen, that they're going to unfold very, very rapidly, and they're going to unfold with world-changing power. Next, this is a book that was meant to be read aloud. It was probably sent as a circular letter from church to church until it was received and read in all of the seven churches. In verse 3, we read that blessing is promised um, to those who uh, read, first of all. Blessing is promised also to those who hear. Blessing is promised to those who keep, that is, who give heed to, rightly respond to what is written in this book. And I can't help but be reminded as I read that of the words of James, the brother of Jesus, who exhorted believers to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And just a few verses later, James also promises, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed. They will be blessed in what they do. It's so easy to study God's word with with such an open mind that it goes in one ear and out the other. So as we read and as we hear God's word to us through this book of Revelation, let's commit to being effectual doers of what God calls us to do in response to what he says to us. And notice that five-word phrase, for the time is near. The time is near. The time of the fulfillment of all that God revealed and John in turn recorded is nearer today than it ever has been. One of the things we're going to discover along the way is that a central theme of the book of Revelation is worship. Worship. And that emphasis is inaugurated in verses 5 and 6 as John just breaks into a benediction of sorts to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In verses 7 to 8, then, there's the promise of Jesus' second coming. Uh, This is not the rapture of the church that's in view. Instead, in verses 7 and 8, we look ahead beyond the rapture of the church to the second coming of Christ at the close of the seven-year period that the Bible calls the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus described that event in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, where he said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here in in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, it's all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the sign of the Son of Man. 500 years earlier, Zechariah prophesied by the Spirit regarding God's redemption of Israel during the tribulation period, where he wrote, and I will pour out, God speaking through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 1, you can just stay there. I hope that you'll have a Bible in your lap. There are Bibles at the back. If you need one, feel free to get up and get one if you would like. Um, if, if you don't have that open, go ahead and turn there now. It's the very last book of the Bible. At least that's what Evan said last week. I, 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 but I kind of disagreed because most of our Bibles, there's this other book called the Book of Maps. So if you find the Book of Maps and take a left, you'll find Revelation. Uh, in our church Bibles, it's on page 965, as Katie mentioned earlier. The scripture that she read to us begins at verse 9 of chapter 1, and that's where we're resuming this morning. First two words in verse 9 are, I, John. I, John. Here's a photograph from his AARP card. You guys remember John at all? Remember, he's the, along with his brother James, he was one of the two sons of Zebedee. And John called John, or Jesus called John and James the sons of thunder. Not exactly sure why, but it's a pretty cool name. They were commercial fishermen. Uh, uh, John was there when Jesus worked a miracle that resulted in such a, an enormous catch of fish that their nets began to break as they were hauling those nets into the boats. And, and then their boats began to take on water and sink because of the weight of all of those fish in their boats. Along with Peter and James, he was called by Jesus to follow him. They left their nets, and uh, and they did just that. In time, John became one of Jesus' inner circle of three closest friends. Within the, the twelve, there was the three. And John was there with uh, Jesus, with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus transfigured in all of his glory. At the Last Supper, it was John who was leaning, resting his head against Jesus as they reclined at the table, uh, he was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He was the one that Jesus entrusted uh, with the care of his mother Mary. Uh, you remember that John, after the after the resurrection, uh, beat Peter in a foot race. He made sure that we understood that he won that race. And at the end of which, they both became witnesses of the empty tomb. Uh, John was present with the other disciples there on that mountain in Galilee. Uh, when Jesus issued the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. He was there again on the Mount of Olives as Jesus ascended into heaven, and now John is old, probably in his 90s. Uh, all of the other apostles have died. Uh, only he is left. So notice with me how John identifies himself in verse 9. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is the writer of five books of the New Testament. He wrote the gospel that bears his name. He wrote three letters that we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Yet there's a very real sense in which we need to see John not as the author of Revelation, but as its recipient and as the faithful recorder of all that he saw, all that he heard, all that he experienced. It's interesting that in John's gospel, the gospel of John, he, he never identified himself even once by name, uh, but only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a great way to think of oneself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, uh, and on other occasions, he just refers to himself when he's part of the action that's being described uh, 
as the other disciple. Uh, In his letters, he refers to himself only as the elder. And uh, this aged apostle, you think about it, could could legitimately have have worn that title apostle uh, as a badge of honor. He could have exercised the lever and leverage the the authority that would have attended to that. But he did not do that. And and so I think we ought to pause here and behold the humility of this man. There's there's something about walking long and deeply with Jesus that works first in us brokenness and then humility that attends the brokenness. And we see that in in John. He's, He's neither impressed with himself nor with titles nor with personal power. He identifies himself first with his readers simply as your brother, a fellow member of the family of God, and secondly, as your partner, your companion. And he roots that partnership in three experiences that they share in common as followers of Jesus. The first he calls the tribulation. And he isn't talking here on this occasion about that seven-year period that will eventually come upon the earth following the rapture of the church. He's here talking about tribulation in general, tribulation with a little T, the the trouble, the uh, affliction that comes in the form of spiritual opposition because of our shared discipleship. I appreciate the way that the contemporary English version rendered the latter part of verse 9. It kind of compressed it together and, and rendered it this way. We suffer because Jesus is our king, but he gives us the strength. To endure, We suffer because Jesus is our king, but he gives us the strength to endure. Jesus warned his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just a chapter later in John 16, he said to them, in the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Second shared experience John points to is the kingdom. The kingdom. Together they worshipped and obeyed Jesus Christ as their sovereign. The emperor Domitian, the Caesar at the time that the revelation was written, had made himself out to be God, similar to some earlier Caesars, but the true kingdom of God submits only to Jesus as Lord and King. The the third shared experience is the patient endurance in Christ Jesus. That word translated, um, the word endurance is translated from the Greek word hupomone. A literal translation is just to remain under, to remain under. As Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he affirmed them in chapter 1, verse 3, for the fact that the hope, the hope that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ means sheer dogged endurance in the life that you live before God, the Father of us all. So John wanted his readers to know, look, I'm not above you. I'm with you. We're in this together. I'm reminded again of the warning given by the writer of the book of Hebrews. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this time in which we are living when 
People are abandoning the church and giving up their hope in Christ and deconstructing their faith. How important it is that we uh, commit to being together and recognizing who we are as the family of God. I think we're going to discover together as we go forward that a significant part of what it will mean for us to keep the things that are written in the book of Revelation, as in all of the word of God, will be just that, to, to renew our commitment to each other, to faithfully gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, partnering together, encouraging one another to endure in and through the trouble that comes our way and will come increasingly our way simply because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. I read someone this week who just who said, here's how to understand biblical prophecy. It's going to get bad, and then it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get worse than that, and then and after that it's going to get even worse, and then it's going to get worse than you can imagine, and only then will it get better. Uh, there's the revelation. Thank you. See, we, we need to learn because of that, at a, at a much deeper level than ever, what it means to be what John describes himself as, a Delphoi, brothers and sisters to each other, and soon koinonoi, partners in the gospel, in tribulation, in the kingdom, and in endurance with each other. There's a whole lot more I could say about that. I'm going to move on. In verse 9, we find John on Patmos. On Patmos, I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Exhibit A of John's partnership in the tribulation is that as an elderly man, he was exiled to a Roman prison island called Patmos. And uh, there you'll see one view from one part of the island. Um And he was exiled there because of his persistence in teaching the word of God. He wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. He was arrested. He was exiled because Christianity seems to have fallen out of favor with the emperor. According to a historian of the time, even in his old age, John was required to work in the Roman mines on that rocky island, which would suggest that that this very old man, can you imagine, may have been brutally treated by the Roman prison guards along with the other prisoners. Patmos is a little tiny island. It's just 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. It lays 40 miles off of the mainland of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. Some of the early church fathers, um, you may or may not recognize these names, including Irenaeus, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius indicate that John was sent to the island of Patmos during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Uh, Domitian was emperor of Rome from A.D. 81 to 96. And and so it would have been during that time that John, somewhere in that time, that John wrote um, or received the revelation and, and, and recorded it. Other sources record that at about A.D. 96, uh, upon Domitian's death, John was released and allowed to return to Ephesus as Nerva began his short two-year reign as emperor. It just occurred to me with a name like Nerva, maybe that's why he didn't last more than two years. You know, just 
got on his nervous. So Paul, or Paul, not Paul, John is on Patmos. He's in the spirit. Notice verses 10 and 11. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira. I read this week that it's actually pronounced Thuatira, but I can't do that. It's always been Thyatira to me. And to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. You know, that phrase, in the Spirit, is actually a special expression. It's used only 13 times in the New Testament. So it's one that we need to understand. The Apostle Paul used it six times in his epistles. John used it uses it three times here in Revelation. So when you come across that phrase, as you're reading the Bible, just remember that it refers to an individual receiving a special filling of the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of prophesying prophesying. For example, David, uh, it says, prophesied in the Spirit. Old Simeon in the temple uh, prophesied in the Spirit when he saw the infant Messiah in the arms of his mother. So, So here in Revelation 1, the Apostle John was in the Spirit as he took up his pen to record these prophetic words from the Savior. In that book, Revealing Revelation, that we've made available to you, Amir Tsarfati adds this, and I thought it was good. While his physical location may have changed, either by vision or by reality, from Patmos to heaven and then to a high mountain in eternity, from which he watched the new Jerusalem descend to earth, chapter 21, verse 10, his spiritual location never changed. He was in the spirit from start to finish. So from the beginning of the revelation to the very end, we understand that John is in the Spirit. Tradition holds that that John was in a cave as he received the revelation. I've not been to Patmos. I'm told that if you visit there, you'll be led to a cave uh, where they will tell you that John received the revelation. But John never tells us that. The Bible never says that at all. He, he may have been anywhere. Could have, could have been in a cave, on the beach, in a hilltop. All John tells us is that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We might say that he was prepped to prophesy. And his first experience was to hear from behind him a voice that was like a trumpet. Let's pause right here for just a moment. Notice that phrase, like a trumpet, like a trumpet. Say this word with me, simile, say simile. Simile. Simile is one of the dominant literary features of this book. See, it doesn't say that John heard a trumpet. It says he heard a voice like a trumpet. John uses the word like more often than a valley girl. In fact, the word appears 46 times in the book of Revelation. And a full eight of those occasions are right here in chapter 1. The voice of like a trumpet was not, secondly, an inarticulate sound. Uh, It wasn't just a blast of a horn and John thought he heard something. It was rather spoken word. It was clear. It was intelligible. Let's read it again. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Uh, the tech crew got me this handy-dandy laser. Comes with a Surgeon General's warning. Um, but there's Patmos right there in the Aegean Sea. There's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And so there's like this mail route, like a, like a postal route through the churches. In the next two chapters... We're going to gain insight into the lives of the churches in each of these seven cities. Uh, I listened to a message from a prominent evangelical preacher who suggested that, that John hand wrote seven copies of the Revelation and sent one copy to each of the seven churches. That may be. I don't know. I'm pretty sure there was no Xerox in those days. Uh, I don't see any indication, though, in the text that that was the case. I think it's more likely uh, that it was sent as a circular letter. It was passed from church to church until it had been read aloud in every one of those seven churches. So John is on Patmos in the spirit, and then he sees something in the midst of the lampstands, or more exactly, someone. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In both the tabernacle and later in the temple when it was built, one of the furnishings was a menorah with seven branches. And it would seem from John's description that instead of one lampstand with seven lamps, he saw seven, seven separate lampstands, each made of gold. And in the midst of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. There's that word like again. That designation, son of man, ought to capture our attention. The prophet Daniel recorded a vision that he received in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. He wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him that one like the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. John's description of this one like a Son of Man is significant. John's going to tell us about his clothing He's going to tell us about his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth, his face. First of all, then, his clothing. His clothing. He's clothed with a long robe. The word that John uses there is is just a word for a robe that went all the way to the ankles. 
Uh, there's a golden sash around his chest, and that, that golden sash calls to mind the, the sash that was worn by the Old Testament high priest. Exodus 28.2 says that the holy garments that were to be worn, worn by Aaron, the high priest, were to be made for both glory and beauty. And here the sash worn by the one who stood there among these lampstands identifies him, points to him as a high priest. That his sash is made of pure gold speaks to his superiority to every other high priest. Secondly, John says that the hairs of this one's head were white, like white wool, like snow. I just, I love that. I love that description. I resonate with that. John, John Wolvard suggests that this points to both his eternal nature and his perfect purity. By the way, that doesn't describe me at all. It just re- describes this guy. In recounting his vision of the Ancient of Days in chapter 7, Daniel says in verse 9 that his clothing was white as snow, that the hair of his head was like pure wool. Third, John says that this one's eyes were like a flame of fire, speaking to the fact that, that nothing is hidden from those eyes. Nothing escapes their notice. I don't know if you'd be terrified yet, just, just from this description, I, I'd, I'd be terrified already seeing this vision. His eyes search out every sin so as to execute judgment upon all impurity. Looking, looking forward in Revelation to chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus is revealed there as a, a warrior on a white horse who judges and makes war in righteousness. And John says again of him there, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Fourth, this theme of judgment is continued in verse 15 where, where John turns to his feet, which he describes as appearing like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. In the tabernacle and then in the temple, the brazen altar and and other items made of brass or bronze were used in connection with the offering of sacrifice for the sins of the people. So the feet like burnished bronze tells us that this one like a son of man stands among the lampstands for the purpose of judgment. John describes his voice as like the roar of many waters. In Ezekiel's vision, prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 43 verse 2, he described the sound of the coming of the Lord as like the sound of many waters. In Revelation 14 verse 2, John hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. So imagine the roar of the most powerful waterfall you've ever been close to or the the crashing of the surf on the beach on a stormy day. When the Lord speaks, uh, He thunders, He revealing His majesty, His power, His sovereign supreme authority before which all other authorities must bow. The Lord thunders to His church as He speaks to us through His Word. And from his voice, John now turns to what this one, like a son of man, held in his right hand. It says he held seven stars. And then he tells us, tells us that from the mouth of this one, among the lampstands, came a sharp, two-edged sword. 
Again, looking ahead to Revelation 19, chapter, uh, verse 15, John records of Jesus, the warrior on a white horse, that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The sword that's described in both chapter 1 and there in chapter 19 is is not just any sword. It's not just a generic sword. It was known to the Romans as a romphia. It was a, a heavy sword. Sometimes it needed to be wielded with, with two hands. It was intended not merely to wound, but to devastate upon first impact, to, to minister death and destruction, swift and sudden death to an enemy. And once again, the image is one of judgment. And the omnipotent nature of the one that John encountered. Finally, John describes the face of this one like a son of man as shining in full strength. On that day, when Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus up to a high mountain and he was transfigured before them, uh, the gospel writers report collectively that, that his clothes became radiant, dazzling white, as white as light, intensely white, as no earth, no one on earth could bleach them. And the appearance of Jesus' face was altered and shone like the sun. So given the evidence, let me ask you, who was this one, like a son of man, who was moving among the lampstands? Jesus. John is encountering none other than the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ. In verses 17 to 20, John finds himself at Jesus' feet. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Like many before him, realizing that they were in the presence of the living God, John did a face plant as though he was dead. Abraham before him did that. Ezekiel did that. Daniel, Isaiah, others fell on their faces before the presence of the Lord. For John, this was not like those days, those earlier days when when he experienced that intimate daily fellowship with Jesus, when he accompanied him in his ministry. This was entirely different. Jesus' power, his majesty are no longer veiled. He now stands before John as the righteous judge. And yet, and yet, Jesus laid his right hand on his old faithful friend and said, John, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, throughout the Bible, those who found themselves in the presence of God were stricken with fear that they would die. Because the Bible says that no one can see God and live. 
But Jesus tells him why he need not be afraid. He said, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I've defeated the power of death. I have complete authority over both death itself and the place of the dead. Remember in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, the writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the reason that Jesus took on human flesh comes right down to this very moment that John is prostrate before Jesus. And Jesus said, on that basis, don't be afraid, John. There's nothing for you to fear. You don't have to fear dying. You don't have to fear anything related to death anymore. Don't be afraid, John. And he would say to you today, don't be afraid, church. Don't be afraid of death. I've defeated it for you. And, and you will pass from life unto life. Jesus encourages John. I think he probably raised him to his feet. And then he commissioned him to write, there, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those, are to, those that are to take place after this. And I would suggest to you that here is a basic outline for the entire book of Revelation. The things that you have seen correspond here to this first chapter. Uh, those things that are correspond to chapters 2 and 3. And again, by the way, right through the end of November, that's where we're going to be focusing our attention. Now, starting next week, we're just going to take one of the seven churches at a time and, and examine what Jesus has to say to each of them. And then those things that are to take place after this correspond to chapters 4 to 22. Finally then, in verse 20, Jesus gives an explanation for the stars and the lampstands. By the way, let me just interject here. Some of you have, have expressed that you're just kind of afraid of the book of Revelation. You know, it, it's just kind of overwhelming. And one of the things that that you'll find, and I hope that you'll find, if I do a good job on this series, you, you, will, you will understand this, that 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 which is symbolic is nearly nearly always explained. Nearly always. There are some things that remain mystery, but there there is a clear demarcation in the Scriptures between that which is literal and that which is symbolic. And, and so we'll get there. We'll understand it. You just have to kind of take your time, and that's what we're going to do. So here in verse 20, Jesus gives an explanation for the stars and the lampstands. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Stars, the angels of the churches, the lampstands, seven churches. The Greek word angel or angelos, simply means messenger. The generic use of the word means messenger. Like your mailman. It's a messenger. One who delivers 
a message. One theory then is that, that God has kind of assigned to every church an angel. Possible, I suppose. like to think that might be true. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think there's a better interpretation. And that is that, that the angels are, in fact, the pastors or the elders, the messengers to the seven churches. Why do I believe that? For two primary reasons. One is that they're in the hand of the Lord. They're in the right hand. The right hand in, in Scripture is always the hand of strength. And, and so in the right hand of the Lord are church leaders, pastors, elders. Uh, they're in his hand to be used by him. But secondly, the hand of the Lord is a place in Scripture of protection. It's a place of security. And we never read that angels uh, are in need of protection in any way, or for that matter, um, they're, they're not protected. But, oh my goodness, do pastors need protection? I need protection. I hope you pray for that for me and for Pastor Evan and the other leaders of our church, the elders. Protection. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia. I'm going to talk next week about why the number seven. But but observe this, that the role of a local church, think about the image of a lampstand symbolizing a church, a local church. The role of a local church is to bring to its community the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I right? That's why God has called us here. And of course, the light is not ours. It's his. We are to be reflectors of the true light. And I think you'll agree with me that many churches today have forfeited the privilege and the responsibility of serving as lampstands, of bringing light. They've given themselves instead over to all kinds of purposes, all kinds of causes that they don't believe anymore in God's word. They, they've, they no longer embrace their confidence in the gospel. And so that's, so what they're preaching is something inferior to the gospel. And the influence they're exercising is something other than redemptive in the final analysis. The image of the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ moving among the churches, wearing a long robe and a golden sash, his hair white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters with a massive sharp deadly sword coming out of his mouth is an image of judgment on the church. It's an image of judgment on the church. The Apostle Peter wrote, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jesus, our high priest, is moving among the churches. I hope he's moving in our church. But but this I know, that, that the role of a high priest is to intercede for the people. And God's word tells us that Jesus always lives to intercede 
for the saints. His job right now is to intercede for you and for me, for us collectively, is praying for us, is interceding before the Father for us. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from your sin, from an eternity separated from Him, I want to invite you, no, actually I want to urge you to to bow your knee before Him as both Savior and Lord. He's coming again soon. He's promised He will. The signs are accumulating that that moment is coming soon. He is the first and the last. He is the eternal God. He is the living one. He died. And when he died, he died in your place as your substitute. He bore your sins, the Bible tells us, on the in his body on the cross. And then he was buried. He rose again on the third day following his death as he promised he would. And he is alive today and he is alive forevermore. He's alive eternally. John wrote of Jesus in chapter 1 of uh, his gospel, in him, that is Jesus, in him was life. To a man named Nicodemus, Jesus said that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, speaking of himself, that whoever would believe in him would not face eternal death, but would receive the gift of eternal life. And he himself is that gift. To receive Jesus is to receive life. Before he went to the cross, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John, in one of his letters, said this, He who has the Son, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have Life. So do you have life today? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you received his exclusive gift of eternal life? I invite you to make that decision today to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Be reconciled to God. And to know that your eternity is secure. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning who needs to do some business with God to confess and to repent of some sin in your life. Perhaps you're not sure whether you really are a Christian and you need to settle that matter once and for all. The Bible says, now is the appointed hour. Today is the day of salvation. Today can be that day for you. Whoever you are, whatever the need in your life, if if you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, there are going to be uh, some people on either side of this platform uh, when we close the service, and uh, they would love to be able to just pray with you. They're not here to judge you. They're not here to do anything other than to pray with you. And whatever your need, um, I invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this book of Revelation. I pray, Lord, that um, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit again and again, to receive it, to understand it, uh, to respond correctly to it in ways that honor you, glorify you, and in ways that prepare us for your coming. How exciting it is to think about the fact that that day is near. And Lord, may we be found ready uh, for your coming. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.